This podcast discusses violence, drug use, and other adult themes. Listener discretion is advised. All right, Josh, how are you doing today? I am good. Glad to be back on the podcast. It is fully summer out here in the D.C. area. It is incredibly hot and humid, but I know you are enjoying that cool Colorado weather. I am. I actually was I, I was feeling pretty cold earlier this afternoon. Right now, as I look at the temperature on my phone, 62 degrees. It was all the way up to a balmy, a balmy 70 today, Josh. Don't <laughs> rub it in. Don't rub it in. Tomorrow, high of 67. Wow. You know, it's in this area, you like step outside and you're immediately sweating. So, you yeah, know, at least it feels like you're working out, just walking outside to do anything. So the thing is, though, I'm not really sure if that's better or or worse than what we have, because I, I I really would prefer to have neither of these extremes. Like, I think a nice summer day should be like a high of, I don't know, 80, 85 with moderate humidity. So I'm not really a fan of these days where it's a high of 67, but I'm also not a fan of what you're dealing with there where you step outside and you're soaked in sweat immediately. I mean, I think if I had to choose, I would go with with Colorado, but still not an ideal summer day for me. Yeah, I will say the one nice thing, though, is that we do get to enjoy the pool. That is definitely true. Yeah, pools are not as big of a thing out here. I was kind of surprised. Like in Austin, you know, lots of people have pools and there are pools everywhere that you can join. There are public pools that are really nice. We were, you know, a a five minute drive away from a public park that had a pool for free for the public in Austin. They don't have that here. That's not a thing. So we're, we're kind of trying to find a pool for the days where it does get hot. And it's been it's been hard to find. Well, Zach, you know where pools are very popular. That would be Albuquerque, New Mexico. That's right. That's a pretty good segue. That's a pretty is, good segue into the beginning that, of season two. I give you five stars for that segue because thank you, appreciate it. Because of course, the opening, the credits line is this, uh, is this thing, this eyeball, right, floating in the backyard pool of somebody in Albuquerque, presumably Albuquerque. So that's the opening for the first episode. And just to remind our listeners, what we want to do today is to just take a different approach to to the recap. And so instead of spending the episode doing like a deep dive recap, what I want to do is give like a 60 second summary, just really to sort of jog your memory if it was a while ago that you saw the episode or whatever. And then Josh and I are going to talk through what we think of as the best scene, the best writing, and the best moment. And we'll play clips to go along with those. And then we'll do our our normal sort of discussion of the theme at the end and MVP vote and all that. But it should be a different format. It'll be a little shorter, I think. Uh, But let us know what you think. And I'll just kick it off here with the 60 second summary, Josh. So uh, add anything if you think I forget it. But basically, we start this, we have the credit scene that Josh mentioned, the thing floating in the pool. And then we we pick up right where season one left off. So season one, Jesse and Walt have just made the deal with Tuco in the junkyard lot with the uh, the blue meth. He tries it, he loves it. And then we pick up right there. They're in the junkyard with Tuco. He ends up getting offended by one of his own guys, a man named Nodos, pummels him into oblivion because he just slightly offended him. And at this point, Walt and Jesse realize they're dealing with an unpredictable, completely psychotic madman. But Walt um, calculates that basically, if they work for Tuco for 11 weeks, 10 and a half, I think he says, called 11, uh, then he'll have enough money to provide for his family. So they decide to to uh, keep working for Tuco to Jesse's chagrin, even though Jesse is now fearing for, her, for his life. Um, after especially a second henchman of Tuco shows up dead, uh, Jesse is convinced that Tuco is going to kill them. Uh, so Walt and Jesse then start finding out or start talking about how they can kill Tuco. We also find out that Marie's going to therapy, presumably for the kleptomania that we uh, saw displayed in the last episode when she stole that tiara and gave it to Skylar. 
Um, we see Hank and his partner Gomi digesting the surveillance cam footage from the methylamine break-in when Walt and Jesse pretty clumsily stole a giant drum of methylamine. They, uh, Hank and Gomi deduce that these guys are amateurs because it doesn't look like they know what they're doing on the surveillance footage. And uh, they think that the cartels will eventually catch up to them. And then we see Walt and Jesse being watched, presumably by Tuco. We don't know exactly who it is, but someone's watching them. And then so they make a plan to kill Tuco. Hank is then called out to investigate the murder scene of Tuco's henchman, where he finds not one but two bodies, um, although the second ends up being an accidental death, uh, although Jesse and Walt don't know that at the time. So they still think that Tuco is basically offing everyone who saw him kill his first lieutenant, and so they think that they need to get out of Dodge. So Walt tells Jesse to leave town. He goes home to Skyler. Looks like he might be about to open up to her at least a little bit, maybe more than we've seen so far in the episode. And then he gets a call from Jesse who says, you know, I'm here at your house. Walt heads out to the driveway and finds Jesse in his car. And then Tuco in the backseat holding Jesse at gunpoint. Tuco tells Walt to get in the car and we're off. Season two, end of episode one. So Josh, did I miss anything in that in that summary? I know it wasn't quite 60 seconds, but I tried to make it as quickly as I could. No, I think that was pretty succinct. One thing I wanted to mention about this episode, I don't know if you caught it in the credits, but Brian Cranston actually directed this episode. So I don't know how many episodes of TV he directed before, but he not only directed it, but was starring in it, obviously, as Walt. And, and one of the things that I noticed in the episode, you know, I thought it was a well-done episode. I thought it was paced really well. I thought it was engaging throughout I thought some of it was a little it got a little cute at times like there was a moment where you know Walt is putting a knife back in a knife block and we get this really dramatic sound effect of the knife sliding into the knife block I, that, that felt to me like a first time director kind of a move I didn't but even notice all that in all, <laughs> yeah I guess that's probably because I have you know some film background so I'm, I'm very attuned to those kinds of things but yeah, sure. you know all in all, I thought he did a really nice job in in his Breaking Bad directorial debut here. Yeah, I totally agree. I think he did a very good job. I'm trying to figure out how many uh, episodes he directed. And it looks like, I, I just am looking at the Breaking Bad wiki right here. If this is accurate, he directed the first episodes of seasons two, three, and five. Yeah, So and, and, and no other. So he was just a first episode kind of guy. I'm not sure why the creative decision was made for that. Maybe he just prefers... Uh, you know, directing the first episode of each season, but he didn't. He didn't direct the first se- first episode of season four, and then season five. I don't know if you recall, Josh. It's basically split up because it it aired right. in two chunks, and so he did the first episode of what what we call five B. So right, right, okay. Um, but yeah, interesting. And I'll also I have to do some digging. Maybe I'll uh, be able to dig while you're talking later in the episode, Josh. I'll try to find out if this is actually the first directing that Cranston's done. Period. But I'll see if I can find that on IMDb. Yeah, one of the other things I wanted to mention about the episode is that, you know, not only do we get it starting exactly where we left off, we actually go back a little bit. So we see the very last scene of the seventh episode of of season one. We see that again here at the beginning of season two. Right. And you even get your favorite Tuco line, tight, 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 tight. (laughs) I love it. It's so So not only do you get it once, you get it twice, which is pretty exciting for you. I was very excited. By the way, I'm looking at the director directorial credits for Brian Cranston. He directed seven episodes of Malcolm in the Middle, obviously a very okay. different genre, different genre from Breaking Bad. He directed uh, it looks like a small budget movie called Last Chance in '99, uh, a TV movie in 2006, one episode of a TV series called Big Day in 2006, one episode. This is interesting of The Office in 2012. Huh. That is uh, interesting. T- yeah, two episodes of Modern Family 
Um, and then one episode of Sneaky Pete. I don't know if you've seen that show, Josh, but that is uh, it's an Amazon original, and he he stars as one of the villains in that show. It's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Actually, fun fact about that show: my sister worked on the second season of that show. Oh, that's awesome! Wow. Yeah, yeah. Because your sister your sister does costume design, right? Yeah, yeah. That's right. Well, it's nice when you do your films. You have a you have a built in you know costume designer in the family that can help you with wardrobe stuff. Oh yeah, absolutely. So it looks like Brian Cranston didn't cut his teeth you know, doing Breaking Bad directing. But it does feel like, you know, this is his first episode that he helmed of this series. And so... Well, and also, it's, I mean, it's it's very different, I think, from directing a sitcom, right? So it's definitely, definitely. him cutting his dramatic directorial teeth. Sure, yeah, that makes that makes sense. So we, we should pay particular attention when we get to the premiere of season three and then the episode he directed in season five to see if we see any sort of growth in his directing style. That'll be interesting to watch. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, let's go ahead here, Josh, and talk about best scene, best writing, best moment. And uh, we have different nominees for each of these categories. My, my nominee for the best scene is the very last scene where Tuco takes Jesse and Walt hostage at gunpoint. And uh, I just think that's, that's the best scene because, one, it leaves us off with a cliffhanger. And, two, uh, it's very terse. There's very little dialogue. Uh, it's something that is is better shown i think cranston directing this does a really good job making it be very real uh and it drives home exactly how problematic this whole situation has gotten for walt and jesse so here is that clip right there this is when tuco kidnaps walt and jesse what the hell are you doing here get in so josh i like that clip uh for, for the reasons I mentioned, it's a cliffhanger. Uh, I think it's really well done. And there's there's much more shown than heard. So as our listeners can tell and what we just heard, there were two lines of dialogue. What the hell are you doing here? And then Tuco saying, get in. But sandwiched between those two lines is this really, really great acting performance by Aaron Paul playing Jesse, uh, looking absolutely terrified. His, I mean, he looks like he's fearing for his life. It's like everything that he has feared in this entire episode has finally come to fruition. He thinks that he's being driven out into the desert by Tuco to be shot, and Walt's going with him. And I think that's really, really good. And then you get the madman Tuco emerging from the dark back seat with the gun <laughs> telling Walt to get in. And, and it's just, I think everything about that scene is really perfect. I really like it. And on top of that, the scene happened right after... Walt was having a moment with Skyler. He's feeling very overwhelmed, finding out that uh, Tuco's second lieutenant is dead, and he thinks that he might be next. He thinks he's in over his head, and he goes in, and Skyler says basically, like, please talk to me. Please tell me what's going on. Please open up. And it looks like he might, like, like probably not spilling all the beans, right, but maybe at least connecting with Skyler a little bit more than he has in a long time. And he says, I don't know where to start, but he looks very authentic and very genuine in saying that. And then he gets distracted by this phone call from Jesse and pulled out to the driveway and put you know forced into the car by Tuco and from there things will never be the same essentially so I really like I really like this scene for those reasons uh and the transition that it represents not just in the show but in Walt's life more broadly yeah I'm curious what you think about why Walt might be coming clean here you know to me it seems like the reason might be because he feels like this could be the end. If he feels like Tuco could be coming to potentially kill him and Skylar and Walt Jr., then maybe he feels like, you know, it's like a last confession of sorts. Do you, do you feel like there's any other motivation here? Does he actually feel sorry about what he's been doing? Or do you feel like he feels like he's reached the end? And so 
there's going to be no other opportunity to at least clean his conscience. So I think there's a, I think there's a little bit, I guess this is one instance, Josh, where I'm not quite as cynical as you are on the character of Walt, because I think there's a little bit of genuine repentance here. Just, just, a, just a hint. And I think the first piece of evidence I would, I would cite is that he previously told Jesse to get a dodge. So this is, you know, we've talked about like the father son relationship. This is Walt being kind of fatherly and saying like, Hey son, you should get out. Like, I, you know, I can't leave here because I have commitments in Albuquerque, whatever, but you should leave town because Tuco is probably coming for us. And then he goes home and he's looking overwhelmed and he's, you know, watching the news on the TV and trying to figure out what's going on, but he's looking very overcome with, with emotion. Um, he, he's, he does not seem to be the cold calculating Walt that we've seen so many times already in the series. Um, but with that said, Walt's first instinct constantly is self-preservation. And, you know, when, when it looks like he's about to open up the Skyler, who knows what he's really about to do. Maybe he's about to spin another one of his yarns about what he's been doing and, you know, Navajo sweat lodge style and uh, misleading her on another wild goose chase. So it's really hard to say, but it, it looks like there's a little bit of more, a little bit more authenticity from Walter White than we've seen in recent episodes. Yeah, I guess I can see that. I, I don't I don't totally uh, buy into that fully, but I can see how that might be the case. I think one of the things that's interesting, though, is I, I kind of question his motivation about coming back to the house at all, because, you know, what if what if he instead sort of presented himself to Tuco? I mean, if he really cared about his family to sort of find a way to to leave the money for that he had earned for them and then take his family out of danger in a way that he sort of sacrificed himself. And here he's he's basically putting Skylar into danger by coming back and being with her. Yeah, no, that's true. I don't have a good answer for that at all. Um, although I guess if he is being authentic, maybe he wants to see the family that he loves. But I think that sort of falls a little bit because... He, his first instinct is not to go see her. It's to go like turn on the television and see what kind of danger he's in, right? So Right, yeah. Okay, so Josh, your, your nominee for uh, best scene is different. Do you, uh, do you want to intro this one and then we can play it? Yeah, sure. So this is a scene between Skylar and Hank. And this is an interesting scene because I don't think up to this point in the series, we've gotten a scene with just Skylar and just Hank in the scene together. I mean, we've had group scenes where they're both present. But basically, Hank comes over to the house, to the to the white household, and he's going to confront Skylar about her strained relationship with Marie and basically say, look, uh, Marie's going through a lot here. She's going to, to therapy for this problem that she has. And, and can you have some some pity for her? And, and Skylar basically responds with this very emotionally driven monologue about how, oh, Marie's going through things. Yeah, that's not true. Like, listen to everything that I'm going through. Remember what I'm dealing with. So we're right. going to hear a little bit of that right here. we got to support the shit out of her. Oh. Do we? Yeah. I need support. Me. The almost 40-year-old pregnant woman with a surprise baby on the way. And the husband with lung cancer, who disappears for hours on end, and I don't know where he goes, and he barely even speaks to me anymore. With the moody son, who does the same thing. And the overdrawn checking account. And the lukewarm water heater that leaks rusty-looking crap and, and is rotting out the floor of the utility closet, and we can't even afford to fix it. But, oh, I see. Now I'm supposed to go, Hank, 
please. What can I possibly do to further benefit my spoiled, kleptomaniac bitch sister who somehow always manages to be the center of attention? Because God knows she's the one with the really important problems. Yeah, Josh, I think this is a really good nominee for best scene, in part because this is a very well-written dialogue between two of the less central and, for that reason, very underrated actors in the show. I think um, Hank and Skyler are are first-rate as far as their acting performances from episode to episode. And this, you know, I, I obviously our listeners know I just uh, selected the very last part of this conversation, really just the uh, sort of ending monologue of Skyler, but it's really, really good, really powerful. Yeah, I think that the the reason that I like it so much and, and why it's my nominee for best scene is because I think it's really good character building for Skylar. And what I've been noticing as I've been watching the show is, I mean, we've been discussing that that Walter is is not a good person at this point. He's he's made a lot of mistakes. He's doing a lot of things that are questionable morally speaking. And but sometimes as a viewer, you feel like you're rooting for him because right. he is the protagonist of the show. And so the thing that I think that this scene establishes really well is that Skylar really is a victim at this point. You know, she's dealing with a lot of difficult things that I think we as the viewer forget about because we can sort of chalk it up to, oh, she's just whiny. Like, just just right. get over it, Skylar. But I think that this sort of helps to reset the balance here where, you know, we, we firmly see that Walt is an aggressor and that he's doing a lot of negative things and that Skylar is a victim at this point. And so I think it's really important because it allows the viewer to take a step back and not allow us to fully commit to like Walt's misdeeds just because he's the quote unquote protagonist. And I, I also really like the very end of the scene, which happens right after the clip we just heard where, where Hank says, uh, can I take a look at your water heater thing? Like the, when, which I just <laughs> think is a really funny, a tag to the end of the scene. Yeah. And, uh, it, I think it's typical Hank, right? Like Hank is, uh, Hank is so stereotypically macho in the entire show. A really good guy, but he does not know how to deal with uh, with emotion. He doesn't know how to deal with drama. He'd really prefer not to. Uh, it's why, for example, in this whole in this whole dialogue, he reveals that he sort of let Marie steal this six hundred dollar tiara and then gift it because he didn't want to, you know, get involved and all of that. So uh, he's a very stereotypical man in this in this respect. And uh, when Skyler re- reveals all this stuff to him and you know, very truthfully is sort of bearing her soul and what's on her mind. Hank doesn't know how to respond other than, well, let me help with your water heater. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's pretty great. Should we move on to the uh, best writing? Yeah, for sure. So I'll start with my nominee here. And uh, I've called this scene Adjusting for Inflation. It might be better named 737 uh, after the episode, but this is where the title of the episode comes from. And uh, this is Walt right after the junkyard scene with Tuco. He and Jesse are in the car and he's he's calculating in his head how much money exactly uh, to the you know to the dollar that he needs to put his family on the right track, assuming that the cancer kills him, and so I'm going to play that scene right here. Adjusting for inflation. Good state college. Adjusting for inflation. Say forty five thousand dollars a year. Two kids. Four years of college. Three hundred sixty thousand dollars. Remaining mortgage on the home. One hundred seven thousand. Home equity line, $30,000. That's 
cost of living, food, clothing, utilities, say two grand a month. I mean, that, that should put a dent in it anyway. And 24K a year, provide for say 10 years. That's $240,000 plus 360 plus 137. 737. $737,000. That's what I need. All right. So, Josh, I like this scene a lot. First of all, I mean, I nominated for best writing because uh, I think the best writing in this show is the monologues throughout. You just selected one for the best scene where Marie had that, uh, not Marie, Skyler had that great uh, sort of closing line of the dialogue with Walt. And this is Walt ostensibly talking to Jesse, but really he's thinking out loud and, and I think talking to himself about what he needs. And I like this a lot because this is telling us several things. One, this is typical Walt, right? He's brilliant. He can add these immense sums of money in his head and adjust for inflation, which I just think is a really funny way to start off this uh, this list of figures. He's out of touch with the reality around him. I mean, he literally just saw a man beaten to death and then gets back to his car and is able to say like, okay, adjusting for inflation and cost of living and home equity line and you know residual, residual mortgage, all this stuff. And, and he's really trying to rationalize everything he's done and every situation into which he has inserted himself. And this is, I think, an interesting nod back to the pilot where we were introduced to the idea that Walt is doing this completely selflessly, entirely for his family, right? When he told his family on that video camera, the very first episode of the first season, uh, you know, you're gonna learn some things about me. I just want you to know, uh, I did it for you, right? So I think in this monologue, Walt is trying to convince someone, uh, and you might think it's Jesse because he's sitting there in the car with Jesse. You might think it's the viewers because we're the audience. Uh, but I really think it's himself. He's trying to convince himself that he's doing this for purely altruistic purposes and that there is an end in sight, that he, he needs 10 and a half, call it 11 weeks to get enough money working for Tuco to save his family. That's $737,000. And uh, I don't want to give too much away if we have listeners who are watching this for the first time as we go through the season, but the 737 or 737 is a nod to a significant event later later in this series, in this season. Um, other interesting notes from this scene to me, Walt is having this conversation with Jesse in the car while he's in the, the whole getup, the whole costume of Heisenberg, which is his alter ego, uh, the same alter ego who walked into Tuco's lair and blew that up with the fulminated mercury. And so what you see is the, the mild-mannered, uh, sort of uh, absent-minded, brilliant chemistry professor Walter White and the uh, drug dealer Heisenberg uh, having this uh, kind of dialogue almost with themselves. And I think Jesse sees it that way as well because as they're in the car and he's finishing this 737 monologue, Jesse turns and looks at him like, what in the world are you even talking about? What are you thinking? Do you see any way in which we can work for this psycho? Um, so Jesse has this really incredulous look on his face and he can't believe why Walt is continuing laying out plans to continue working for Tuco. But ultimately I think the point of this monologue is it's all about the money. That's the entire reason Walt is doing this. Yeah. I think your Jekyll and Hyde comparison is really a good one there because it's, it's not something I picked up on when I initially watched it, but, but upon listening to that scene again and thinking about it, it really does make sense that that Walt really is two people at this point. You know, he, he really is trying to maintain the, you know, the Dr. Jekyll uh, side of himself where he's just this chemistry teacher and, and he's doing this for his family, but he has this other side that he really enjoys tapping into, you know, as as Mr. Hyde. And uh, and I think that's a really, a really good uh, observation there. 
you know, the cynical side of me is, is thinking like, yes, he's saying that it's, it's for altruistic, uh, reasons or he's trying to convince himself. And yet he's, you know, we'll, we'll find out later that he doesn't, he doesn't want to stop at a certain point, you know? And I think that part of, part of that is, has to be there at this point. You know, he likes the feeling that, that he gets when he's doing something he knows is wrong. And we, we got that in the last episode of the first season where he and Skylar sort of, you know, when they get together in the car outside of the, outside of the school, uh, you know, meeting and, and he says he liked it because it was illegal. Or, or when Hank said about the Cuban cigars, right? The forbidden fruit tastes right. the sweetest. Right. And so, you know, I think that there is some of that at his, at his core. So, you know, I think that it's interesting to note that he's on the surface, it looks like it's for altruistic purposes, but right. really we know that there's something more going on there. Yeah, totally. How about your nominee for best writing, Josh? So I really like the scene where, you know, we see Jesse purchase a, a gun and he does it in sort of a, a humorous way. He's out eating tacos <laughs> yeah. or, or hot dogs or something, you know. Yeah, what's the name of that? He, what's the name of that uh, That hot dog restaurant? It's like, I can't, it's not, I can't remember. The dog house. There's a, it's something humorous. Yeah. There's a great visual where Jesse's sitting at the table and, and above his just this like really this wiener dog who is like flashing neon lights and he's yeah. having this really serious moment of like trying to purchase a gun to protect himself. But but basically Jesse has decided he's going to purchase a gun and he is going to uh, he's going to take care of Tuco and he brings this idea to to Walt and Walt just completely shuts him down. And so we'll hear a little bit of that exchange right here. How would you do it? You mean, how would I do it? Specifically, how would you do it, step by step? All right. Say we set up one last sale. This is providing he doesn't decide to waste this before then. Now, every time we bring in a new batch, he always tests the product, right? So as his head is down, you know, giving it a snort, just pop, pop, pop. Pop, pop, pop. So three shots. Yeah, three shots, or I don't know, two. No, wait, wait, is it two, or is it three? I mean, two would probably work, I guess, yeah. Okay, two shots. Two shots in the chest, two shots in the face. Man, what? come on. No, I'm just it... trying to understand how this works. So the thing that I like about this scene, and the reason why I think it works so well, especially as a written form, is because it further emphasizes the relationship between Jesse and Walt. But what I think is interesting about this is that I think that Jesse is actually thinking correctly for what they should be doing. Now, his execution might not be spot on. You know, he says, we should just, you know, go pop, pop, pop. You know, it's, it's right. kind of funny coming from someone like Jesse, even though it's serious. So his execution isn't right, but but the idea that they should think about protecting themselves or or being proactive is is not necessarily the wrong thing for them in this situation. But Walt is serving as the father figure here. And you can almost imagine it, you know, where a, a son would come to the father and say, look, I'm, I'm thinking about doing this thing and, and here's how I would approach it. And the, and the father figure would say, well, let me play devil's advocate here and, and let's, let's talk through how you would actually do it. And this is a much more serious and dramatic conversation. You know, it's not like, Hey, should I, should I uh, take this job or this job? It's like, should I uh, kill this person with a gun or, or not? You know, it's much more serious here, but you know, Walt is talking him down, but really, I think he's ignoring the bigger problem, which we've seen him do before when it comes to these these drug deals. Like, he is ignoring the reality that Jesse is clearly 
aware of and and has been aware of for his entire adult life that he's been in this business. So I think it's an interesting like reversal. Like I think Jesse's correct to a point and I think Walt is incorrect, but we still have the father-son relationship where the father comes off as correct and the son comes off as incorrect. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it it totally does. And I think your father-son analogy is strengthened by the fact that this whole conversation is taking place in Jesse's kitchen. So it has a very like familial home feel to it visually as well, because this is just like a father-son conversation might happen in a kitchen. I mean, I can't tell you how many times growing up I would have conversations with my dad at the dinner table or in the kitchen around the, you know, the kitchen island or whatever about what was going on and what to do about it. And it does feel very much like it's the, the paternal child relationship sort of developing an idea here. Yeah, definitely. Should we move on to the best moment of the Yeah, episode? let's do it. So so my best moment here, it was not it it is not nearly as dramatic or sort of brilliant in writing as the other scenes we've talked about. Um I do have a runner up as well. It's pretty though. great they're, though. They're, they're both great. just humorous. First I'll just mention the runner up. Uh there's a scene where Marie has a fight with Hank about whether or not she should go to therapy or whether or not she's, you know, blowing off her therapy appointment again. And uh, there's a kid driving a little remote control car in the neighborhood, like their next door neighbor. And when she peels out of her driveway, she just rolls right over the RC car. Uh, it's pretty devastating for the little kid. So Hank, Hank, uh, I think peels out of 20 or something. Four, maybe it was 40, but pays for it basically. Um, but the best moment for me was this humorous uh, moment from, you know, who else? Jesse, when uh, Walt is talking about what they're going to do to kill Tuco. So, uh, Josh, you just mentioned the conversation about, you know, that Jesse wanted to use the gun. Uh, Walt says, no, there's a better way. Uh, and we're going to use beans. And then this is, this is how the conversation transpires from there. Beans. Beans. They're caster beans. So what are we going to do with them? Are we just going to grow a magic beanstalk? Huh? Climate and escape? We are going to process them into ricin. Ricin beans. Ricin. You know, Zach, when I when I rewatched this scene, I actually laughed out loud. That that's hard for me to do, especially if I've seen something before. But I completely forgot yeah. this moment was going to happen, <laughs> and it's I so just good. started laughing out loud. It's it's really well acted because it's it is silly and goofy, but it's really well acted, and and Aaron Paul plays it with a real earnestness, which is exactly <laughs> what what the line needs. Yeah, exactly. And so uh, there's the whole part about you know what are we going to do? Grow a magic beanstalk, which is hilarious enough. And then when uh, when Brian Cranston. Uh, corrects him and says, Ricin. <laughs> Jesse's like, Rice and beans? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As if we're going to like uh, spoon feed him to death or something <laughs> like that. Like maybe we'll make him eat until he dies. Yeah. Right. Right. And so the actual answer, obviously, that uh, Walt emphasizes is Ricin, the poison. Uh, so that's how they're going to, that's how they're going to get Tuco. They're going to find a delivery mechanism to uh, give him ricin, which is apparently very difficult to detect to detect in toxicology reports, autopsies. So uh, they think it's something that they could get away with. And ricin is a very effective poison as well. So uh, I just like that moment because of the, the levity it brings to the situation. Uh, and that is, again, sort of a, a father-son thing. But it's also, I, I thought of the uh, chemistry teacher student dynamic there, right? Jesse was the F chemistry student that uh, Walt was uh, trying miserably to help. And, you know, it seems that his chemistry knowledge has not improved at all since then. Yeah. And and to our listeners, if you haven't watched the, the series yet, just know that 
this this whole uh, theme and use of ricin will play an important part as we continue down the road. I won't spoil anything now, but just know that it does come back in in many ways in the future. So so be sure to pay attention for when that comes back. Yeah. Good so point. my my nominee for the best moment is is more serious, and it's one you mentioned for your best scene. But it's the kidnapping. And the reason that I picked it as my best moment is because it's something that I completely forgot had happened. So as our listeners will know, this is the second time I've watched the series all the way through. But I completely forgot that that this was where the story was going. And so it took me by surprise when when Tuco showed up in the backseat of the car. And it also sort of prompts another question that I think now is, is a good time to discuss briefly. You know, Tuco is obviously incredibly crazy. He's a psychopath, but I can't really figure out what sent him completely off his rocker at this point, because it's a little unclear since it seems like at this point he had scared Jesse and Walt into doing exactly what he wanted them to do. Why wouldn't he want to to keep making the money? I mean, he knows how much money he can get for this high quality meth. He's getting to use it, which he apparently values highly. And it's unclear to me why if it was just the the sort of statement from his henchman that sent him off on this rampage, but it, it's unclear why all of a sudden Tuco is going to want to destroy the people who have been providing him his best product. Yeah, I think it's a good question, but I also don't think, I mean, it's, it's so hard to understand Tuco's intentions because he is such a psychopath, but I think it's worth suggesting that his goal here is maybe not to kill them. Um, and as we'll find out in the next episode, that's certainly an option in his mind, but it's also an option to, uh, you know, send them to Mexico where he can have them do their cooking down there. And so he sees it as a potential opportunity for him to move his production south of the border because he's feeling some increased pressure. And but a lot of that, that a lot of the pressure is self-inflicted because uh, he he killed his own man and his second this, the second body that Hank found at that crime scene I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. Uh, that has a that's a body, but that was an accidental death because what happened was Tuco had sent his henchman back to collect the body, or maybe the henchman had just you know gone back uh, on his own. That was Gonzo, and then he basically had a piece of car junk fall on him or something. It was a very like you know freak accident type situation, but Tuco doesn't know that, and so Tuco thinks that Gonzo has become an informant, and so he's like we you know basically we gotta uh, we've got to get out of Dodge because my operation's crumbling, and so I think. I think the uh, the effort to kidnap Jesse and Walt is not so much about killing them, although he will certainly do that if he thinks that they're the moles or they're the rats, but it's more about uh, them being one of the linchpins in his operation, and he, you know, he understands that and needs to take them south as well if he can continue producing. So, um, I yeah, think that I think that'll become more clear in the in the second episode, uh, but I think that's the that's the game plan for Tuco to an extent that he yeah. has one. <laughs> yeah, I think that makes sense, and I think your point about trying to understand the motivations of someone who's probably a, a sociopath and, and you know, yeah. is not mentally stable. And also, in addition to that, is using heavy drugs. It's probably not something that is going to be rational to people who are thinking about it. And then, right. you know, with regards to the second henchman who dies, I'm just going to prepare you, Zach, for a true dad joke. If he wasn't Gonzo before, he's definitely Gonzo now. There you go. <laughs> That is it. That's a world-class dad joke on the heels of Father's Day. Uh, yeah, I appreciate that. 
Um, so I think the only thing left to do here is just to do a, like a discussion of, of the overall theme of the show. I know you had a, one more one more scene you wanted to at least talk about. Yeah, so there's a scene that happens at the beginning of the, or towards the beginning of the episode. And I think that it it is a, it's a good example of sort of the overall theme of the show, which is sort of the descent of a person into morally gray and morally dubious and evil areas here. And, and, you know, we're examining Walt most closely so far. And, and this scene at the beginning with, with him and Skylar um, is, is telling, and it's also a bit disturbing. And I think that the interesting thing, and just to set up the scene a little bit is that, you know, Walt comes home from his encounter with Tuco, where he's seen a man beaten to death. And he's clearly, you know, shaken up about this. And instead of sort of like going to Skylar for comfort, he sort of forces himself upon her in a way that is is very uncomfortable to watch. And, and she is, totally. as a character is uncomfortable. And, and even despite the fact that they're in a marriage, I mean, you still can't force yourself on someone who doesn't want that. Uh, you know, to happen to them. Right. And, and she's not in a situation where she's receiving of this. And she she really has to forcefully tell him to stop. And and he does stop, not after he sort of pushes her against the refrigerator and she bumps her head or, or really slams her head into the refrigerator. But what's interesting about the scene in sort of looking at the larger themes of Breaking Bad is that we're seeing Walt creep down this path of of no return now he is able to stop himself at this point but you start to wonder is he going to get to a point where he will no longer be able to stop himself and i think that's something that's interesting to explore as we go through season two and then season three four and five to see is he going to get to a point in his descent into evilness and and evil things to a point where he can't come back you know, at this point, he's able to catch himself a little bit. I think that is well said. And just to add to your point, when I reflect on that scene in combination with the scene that you already talked about, uh, where Hank is talking to Skylar, what's clear to me is that Walt's choices are really damaging his family. So he set out ostensibly at the very beginning of the show to do all this for his family. But now the most direct recipients of the damage that he's causing and he's inflicting are his family, namely Skylar. Uh, Walter Jr., to an extent, obviously his unborn daughter as well, but Skylar is really receiving the brunt of it. And that's evident from this scene that you just talked about, Josh, where he uh, is basically sexually violent towards his wife. And it's evident in the scene where Skylar kind of unloads on Walt about everything that she's dealing with. And I think it's also worth pointing out that in the aftermath of this sexual encounter with between Walt and Skylar, when Walt does stop, he kind of goes out to the backyard and like he has like a little bit of a breakdown. Like he's almost like crying or maybe it's rage or something, but he's clearly uh, emotionally overcome with something. And then Scatter goes out and basically says, I know you're going through a lot and it's not fair and it sucks, but you cannot take it out on me. Um, and so, again, underscoring the point that he started out on this path pretending at least that he was helping his family, stating that that was his entire intent all along. And what is he doing now but just hurting them? So it's, it's, a, it's a sad commentary on the state of Walter White's Breaking Bad. And I think even worse than the fact that he is hurting his family is that he's not aware that he's 
hurting them. He still thinks that he's helping them by doing all of these yeah. things. It's like he's oblivious to the fact that the people who are being hurt the most are his family. And he just thinks that they're fine. That He doesn't think about them when he's off on his own. And I think now's a good time to talk about Walt Jr. Oh, sorry, we're out of time. Sorry, Walt Jr. You'll have to wait until next time. <laughs> Actually, you didn't have but one scene in this episode, and it was pretty right. pointless, as as yeah. usual. Yeah, the, the plot device, Walter Jr., the perpetual plot device. All right, well, how about our MVP vote, Josh? we got to do that before we wrap up here. So uh, the tally right now, Jesse's won three times, Walt has won four, Crazy Eight has won two, and we'll reign there since he's dead. Skyler has won two, and Tuco has won three. So where does your vote go for today's performance? Well, if it wasn't obvious already by my choice of my best scene, I'm going to give this one to Skylar because I think that this one really helps to expand her character. I think that Anna Gunn, who plays Skylar, does a really nice acting job. It just it just brings her to a place that we haven't seen her before. It really helps you to connect with her as a character. And I don't think we've gotten that to this point. So Skylar will be we'll be getting my vote for MVP for the first episode of season two. How about you, Zach? I'm actually going to go with the same exact thing. I think that the scenes that you mentioned uh, have Anna Gunn at their, you know, front, up, up their front and center, and she does a really good job. She is a pivotal character in, I would say, two of the three major scenes in this series or in this episode. Um, I also like Jesse a lot because of his roles in the Tuco kidnapping scene, the uh, you know rice and beans scene, and the uh, how, you know how are you going to kill Tuco scene. But I think Anna Gunn uh, beats him out just just slightly because of her extended monologues uh, and the the power of those. So I'm going to also give it to her. So if I'm not mistaken, Josh, that now puts Skyler into a tie with Walt for the most MVP votes so far on the podcast is that right that is correct i'm curious before we before we continue on with our with our rewatch of the show and and talking about it if you had to guess by the end of our podcast who do you think is going to be out front and i think this will just be fun to revisit when we get to you know season five episode 16 when we're doing our final mvp who would you guess in your opinion, is going to have the top spot in our MVP? Well, let's see. I'm trying to think about some people who might uh, make their way onto there later. I think we'll probably have uh, at least a few votes for Gus along the way. Uh, I know he hasn't emerged yet in the show, but he will. Um, but I have to think it's going to be either Jesse or Walt. So yeah. choosing, yeah, I think choosing you're right. one of those. I, I don't know. I think I'm going to go with Jesse. What about you? Okay, yeah. Uh, just for the sake of, of disagreeing, I'll go with Walt. But <laughs> but I think you're I think you're right. I, I think it's probably going to be Jesse or Walt. It's interesting though. You know, through eight episodes of the show, we have a pretty even spread of of MVPs. I mean, th- theoretically, you could you could probably give it to Jesse or Walt for every episode. But but in analyzing it a little bit further and in talking through it. I really have been convinced to give it to other people. So it'll be interesting to see how these continue to spread out as we continue watching through the series again. Totally agree. All right. Thanks so much for listening to Breaking Pod. You can find us wherever you get your podcast. Please tell your friends about us and rate and review us. Let us know what we can do better. We would uh, love your feedback as we go through. If you have questions about the show or general comments, we'd also love to hear that too. And we can talk about those on the next episode. So reach out to us, Breaking Pod at vernacularpodcast.com and while you're at it check out all the other great shows on the vernacular podcast network and we'll be back to talk to you soon about episode two of season two thanks so much Mm -hmm.